Let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard, as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing obey. Amen. It is odd to be a pastor in a place like an emergency room in the hospital, because in an emergency room in the hospital, everyone has a uniform. And I don't wear my robe or a kilt to the hospital. And everyone there has a, a name badge of some kind. And on their name badges will have a bunch of letters following their name to tell everyone who they are and why they're there. But the pastor doesn't have that in the emergency room. Very early on, I can remember asking an older colleague if they could give me a name badge at the hospital. And he asked me, what would you want it to say? And I said, well, couldn't it say clergy or something like that? And he said, well, why would you need it to say that? And then he smirked at me. I bet you didn't know, by the way, that pastors haze their freshmen too. <laughs> Just ask Chris Hallam. Chris is preaching on Thanksgiving Day, and she's preaching the Sunday after Christmas, and she's just finding out about this right now. <laughs> I hope you all come. <laughs> but I now see what my smart Alec, older, much older if he's watching, colleague was saying though. Why did I need a name badge? Why, why, would, why would I need a name badge? Would I not be clearly identified by the way that I listened and cared and prayed and comforted? Why did I need a name badge? Wouldn't I be clearly identified by the way that I listened and cared and prayed and comforted? Can't they tell who you are by those things? This is a question for all of us, I think. Not just for clergy people in hospital rooms, but for everyone that seeks to follow Jesus. Do people need a name badge to know who you are? Or do people know because of the way you listen and care and pray and comfort? Do people know? that you are a follower of Jesus. These days, there's a lot of Christian consternation about the number of people who call themselves Christian. The numbers aren't pretty. More and more people are calling themselves religiously unaffiliated, affectionately called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, the nuns. 
And they represented only 10% of the population in 1980. That is the U.S. population. Now they make up a quarter of all Americans, the nuns. People are writing books on this trend. They're building careers on this trend, advising churches through this conundrum. But as depressing as all of that might be, what I'm really interested in, what I'm really interested in today in this church, what I'm interested in is not how many people self-identify as Christians, but how many people can be recognized as the Christian that they say that they are. You know? Or do we need a name badge? This was a much riskier endeavor in the first century, you might imagine. Somehow a, a group in Antioch still found themselves being named Christian in spite of the physical danger that put them and their loved ones in. That's how much they embodied their faith, so much that it was easy for others to identify them as Christian. Here in Acts 11, the setting of the passage is framed by the violence we remember from last week's story, the stoning of Stephen. Stephen, whose death was under the orders of the young man Saul, who would one day be Paul, offering a warning shot to everyone else that sought to follow Jesus. You'll remember that sermon last week was called Origin Stories. It took us back to learn how Saul was before he became Paul. By the way, the quote on the bulletin last week was from Stan Lee, a comic book icon. Comic books are known for delving into origin stories. Sadly, Stan Lee died on Monday. You have no idea how many texts I received. Please don't put me on the bulletin. <laughs> but that passage sent a message to everyone else that sought to follow Jesus. The stoning of Stephen sent a message, and that message was run. Run, run, run. And they did. They ran off, as we learn in today's passage, they ran to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And Antioch was about 300 miles north by way of the Via Maris. And it was the third largest city in Rome, uh, in the Roman Empire, after Rome and Alexandria. Some estimate that its population was about 500,000 people. And it wasn't just big, it was a cultural center. It was an urban ideal. It was highly diverse, many languages were spoken, many belief systems were adopted, and somehow still in this melting pot, this is the place where the gospel started to really thrive. But, as Donald Jewell of Luther Seminary wrote, at this point in Acts, those who confess Jesus as Lord and Christ do not understand themselves as anything but Jews for whom God's ancient promises have been fulfilled. So they might not have self-identified as Christians, you see. But for some reason, for the people of Antioch, they are something different, even amidst all the different belief systems, they stand out. And the Antiochians, for the first time, begin to call them the Christians. 
And so sit in that for a minute. Just sit in that for a minute. If we were in Antioch, what would they call us? They would have a lot of categories to put us in. Political preference, liberals and conservatives, economic status, rich, poor, by nationality, by the color of our skin. They could separate us in all kinds of different ways, but if, if we were in Antioch, what would they call us? Would we be seen and named as one, as a group of the Christians? Or would they get our name wrong? Why would they get our name wrong? What is it about what we do or don't do that would get us left out of being named as one of the Christians? Would we need a name badge? I'm always amazed at how people get our name wrong here at Kirk in the Hills. Have you ever noticed that? Kirk in the Hill. Kirk of the hill. Kirk about under and on top of the hill. It, it's not that hard. It really isn't. And they always are getting it wrong. It was always meant to be easy, the name of this church. Our history tells us that one morning around 2 a.m., Dr. Bechtel, who was the first pastor of this church, received a phone call from Colonel George, our first benefactor. By the way, 2 a.m., not the greatest time to call your pastor. <laughs> but he was calling, and he said something to the effect of, I have the name for the church. Kirk, Kirk, is the word for church in Scotland. And we are in Bloomfield Hills, so let's call it Kirk in the Hills. Now most people call this place the Kirk, which is nice. But I really wish that when people referred to this place, when you all referred to this place, you would just say, our church, our church home. Saying the Kirk sometimes as regal as it sounds, keeps the institution sort of separate and distant. Easy to point fingers at and criticize the Kirk. But saying our church, that keeps it relational. It says this, is, this place is part of me and I am part of it. I want to love and be loved because I'm part of this place. This is our church. This is our church. Besides, Kirk in the Hills, according to Kirk Docent Manual Reports, and I trust Kirk Docent Manual Reports 100%, Crystal. Those manual reports tell us that Kirk in the Hills was not the original name of our church. Is this news? In a letter to Wirt C. Rowland, noted Detroit architect, dated July 28, 1944, Colonel George observed, 
It is my firm conviction that a church should never be an imitation of something. On the contrary, it should be an expression of truth. Therein, all souls church, stone must be stone, wood must be wood, bronze or iron must be true to its name, and concrete or plaster must not be an imitation of something else. And so all the way back into 1944, we've been trying to get our name right. What are we doing so that others will get our name right too? What are we doing so that others, like those in Antioch, will get our name right? And can, amidst all the other things, be calling us Christian? Today, some of you are wearing tartan. Today, I am wearing black shoes <laughs> and a kilt. We wear these colors because we say we are connected to a religious tradition that dates back to the 16th and 17th century in Scotland. Our Presbyterian roots draw water from good Scots like John Knox. Our Reformed theology, one that boasts phrases like God alone is Lord of the conscience, is threaded with Highlander independence. Today I am wearing these colors, and some of you are too, but my hunch is that we're not going to be wearing them tomorrow. I know I'm not. Will people still know who we are? How will they know who we are? How will they be getting our name right? For starters, let us go back to what Colonel George said. Everything in here should be real. Not just the stones, not just the wood, not just the iron, the people. Because like the Christians in Antioch, we don't actually get to choose what they call us. But if we're real about the power of prayer, if we're real about our devotion to service, if we're real about what we keep saying about kindness, if we're real about our humble reliance upon God's grace, then I hope by looking at us, we'll have everyone saying, they don't need a name badge. They don't even need a tartan, even if it is fun to wear. Those people are real. They have the courage to live authentically. They are the ones that follow Jesus. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen.